0: The places that I have been learning and growing is how to more properly view myself and how to view other people. I think that I launched that grand journey uh, a few years ago when I was 25. Uh, Ann and I were seasoned pastoral veterans of two years. At 23, we started a church, and now we were the people who knew most of the answers to all of the questions. And we were asked by uh, a leader of uh, a group of pastors in training to come and speak at a weekend retreat so that we could be the sage voice of wisdom for these folks. If you don't have one of the handouts, you'll want to grab one of those. If you don't have gummy body parts or if you've eaten one, they can help you with those as well. Aren't our ushers great? Full service right here. If you don't like the paperwork, you can enjoy the cheap snacks. There we go. Is this a great church or what? (laughs) So I invited us to come and to speak at that weekend retreat, and Ann and I were serious about that. We prepared diligently. We fasted from all food for seven days as part of our spiritual preparation. We stood and delivered. I'll tell you, we must have been great. Well, afterward, the leader of the thing didn't give any feedback. And I'm kind of wanting, you know, Alan, for him to say, Jared, man, knock it out of the park. He didn't say anything. He was not only the leader, he was one of our mentors. And so I went to him and I said, Morris, that was his name. Morris, I said, how did I do? And those of you skilled in neuro-linguistic programming know that when he looked up and to the right, he was going, I've got to come up with something, something. And then he looked down and to the right, which means I sure wish you wouldn't have put me on the spot like this. And then he finally looked me in the eye, James, and he said, well, Jared, you were probably a lot better than you thought and a lot worse. That was it. That was the entire debrief. That was all he had to say to me. And I left so disgusted and unsatisfied, and I suppose he could have given me some other feedback, don't you think? But I think that the feedback he gave me maybe was very helpful in framing for me what has been a lifetime of interest in where I fit in life. Who am I and who am I not And who are you and who are you not? And how do we fit together? And how do we make sense of that in a way that is really powerful in terms of God's design for us? And that's what we're going to take a look at today in Romans chapter 12. If you brought your Bibles, love that. Go ahead and turn there or app there, however you get there. The text is also on the handout. I think it will be on the screen as well. As we take a look at Paul, what he says to a church of people much like Evergreen, crazy in love with Jesus, filled with the Spirit, growing up and maturing, but still have a ways to go. And this is what he said. Let's read from Romans chapter 12, starting with verse 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members and then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Here's the bottom line. Be devoted to one another in love and honor one another above yourselves. Wow. Well, did each of you receive uh, a body part on your way in? I don't even want to ask what you might have thought about getting one of those. One of the thoughts that I had that came in mind was, I don't know if I would go to a church that gives out gummy body parts on the way in. and We didn't even need to go here, but when you found out we were receiving communion, you just hoped that we weren't going to somehow try to incorporate that. And <laughs> thankfully, we're over that, and we didn't. But go ahead, and if you haven't, tear it open. And uh, and even if you're not prone to eat this kind of uh, sugar-infested uh, gluten, gelatin, whatever it is, you have to admit that unless you got teeth, how many of you got teeth? Yeah, a few teeth. The teeth really don't work out well this way, but the rest of us, we can squeeze and squish and really smells pretty good, doesn't it? Yeah. So how many of you got a foot like I did? Yeah. Any noses out here? Any eyeballs? Yeah. I got a foot. I like feet. I think feet are great. And as we take a look at this foot today, what we're going to discover in this story that Paul gives us, this metaphor of a body, it's a beautiful picture if all these body parts get together, right? It's a horrific picture if these parts don't get together. This foot severed and all by itself is not a very attractive thing. In fact, if I decided that because I'm a foot I would like for all of you to be feet, and I'm going to do everything I can to make you feet so that the body of Christ looks like Jesus, the head, on top of a giant foot. That's not a very pleasure-invoking kind of an image for us. The whole point of his story is this, that God has designed us individually and uniquely and particularly, and that we really all make sense and find beauty and harmony and the life of God together when we're joined together. So let's take a look at five observations that come right out of this passage. Notice the first one with me, it's this. Each person is given spiritual gifts. He talks to all of us. You've come to faith in Jesus Christ, invited his forgiveness in your life for sin. The Holy Spirit has come to live with you. We invite the ongoing fullness and baptism of God's spirit. His gifts are within us and flow through us. Every one of you is gifted with spiritual gifts. And so it's reasonable, it's necessary that each of us would examine him or herself and discover how God has placed those graces in our life. You are gifted, and we need you. The second observation is, we need transformed thinking. Notice he starts right out by just incriminating everybody. You all need to think different. That's how he starts because there is an old default way of thinking. He calls it, he says this, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. It's the starting point of each of us to have a mindset about ourselves and about others and about how we fit together that is an old world of thinking. And if we're not thoughtful about how we think, we'll default to that old way of thinking. And so he says to us, We need transformed thinking. We don't think right about ourselves. The third observation is we self-assess with sober judgment. Take a self-assessment, he says. And then he gives us some instructions. You know, when you've taken a test or a questionnaire, don't they usually start it with some instructions? Because if you don't have the instructions, you'll end up answering the questions potentially incorrectly, and you won't get good results. So he's like a good teacher giving us a self-assessment. And here's the instructions. When you do a self-assessment, don't think of yourself more highly than you should, but think of yourself with sober judgment. Because we have the tendency to either be not sober, intoxicated with ourselves, and when drunk on ourselves, delusional about how great we really are when we're not Or some of us come into this thing with low self regard and we think so poorly of ourselves that we can't believe that God can actually use us in dramatic and supernatural and powerful ways. And so we never step into the potential that He has for us. And so He says, I want you to take this assessment with a sober point of view. Don't be drunk and don't be depressed when you do this. I want you to think in a level headed, objective kind of way about yourself. And then He gives us beautiful criteria. A, as a standard to judge ourselves against. So, this is helpful news for us because if you're at all like me, the tendency is to compare ourselves with who? Other people, right? And so I'm uh, watching uh, Javier drum, and I go, man, you are gifted to help us lead worship in drumming. Now, I have three options in the old way of thinking, all of which will get me nowhere fast. My first option is to say, I am so envious of you. I just think it stinks that God blessed you and gifted you and you developed those skills that way. I am envious of you. A second thing for me is to depreciate myself and say, I'll never be good. I'll never be as good as you about anything. I just, you know, eat worms. Life is not good for me. The third option is for me to say, you're not gonna be a better drummer than me. Hey, brother, I gotta tell you this. And so I am gonna go to drum lesson school and I am gonna be a better drummer than you are. But guess what? He's gifted and some of you know that I'm not. So at best, my drumming lessons are gonna take me from horrible to lousy. But I'm never gonna get better than that. Ah, self-assessment, So what are the criteria you use to decide where you land in this gifted thing? Notice what it says. He mentions it two times so we don't miss the point. Measure yourself relative, not to others, but to God's gift of faith in you. What have you been drawn toward by faith? And he restates it similarly Measure yourself by the measure of the gift of grace that God has put in your life. Ah, I will apparently never be graced to be a great worship leader. I can go from lousy to poor. Some of us may be from poor to mediocre, but not your giftedness. But I have been called, and I think gifted, at least a couple of people have encouraged me to keep trying anyway, with the gift of teaching. But if I compare myself with world-class teachers and orators, I can come away with a, oh man, I'm not that good. And then I go down this odd, dysfunctional road of my three options. Or I can say, Mr. Jared, God has gifted you as a teacher So you'd better, within your gifts of faith and grace, be the best one you can be. That's stewardship. Now I'm going to grow every year in my public communications abilities. I am going to listen and learn from others. I am going to become more skillful. I'm going to respond to invitations and opportunities to use that gift. And I'm going to say no to a ton of opportunities to do other kinds of things that I know I'm lousy at because it leads us to the fourth observation that we make, which is that diversity is God's design. Yeah, I got a foot. Some of you got a nose, some of you got an ear, some of you got an eye, some of you got teeth. Aren't we glad that when God made our body parts, he made them different from each other? Uh Uh-huh, because the whole body works together in harmony with integrity, with substance, with meaning, with value, with purpose, because of the very differentiation among the parts that God has given us. We're only complete when we're together and we need each other. You ever wondered where religion comes from, that rigid, stiff kind of external stuff? One of the sources of religion is people who understand themselves and decide that they are feet, and then from their narrow point of view think that everybody else should be feet. So now, Patty, if you're not a foot, because I love you, I'm going to tell you you're wrong. Furthermore, because I love you, Patty, I'm going to do everything I can to help you be a foot. Because this ear stuff, I don't really get. Being feet is being right. So you and I are going to go on a journey, and I'm going to be your mentor, and I'm going to make you the best foot that you should be, because you should be like me. Kind of made a caricature of it. We've all been there, haven't we? Sure. I'm the standard of what's right. You should be like me because I love you. I'll help you be like me. Paul says, hey, know and celebrate who you are, Bigfoot boy, and then celebrate and know who Patty is and others are, and together it's where Jesus lives and dwells and his kingdom is established and extended, which brings us to observation number five. We honor others when we appreciate them. Notice how he ends, be devoted to one another in love and honor each other higher than yourselves. To believe is to feel sure that someone has the ability to do a particular action. To appreciate is to value or is to add value to someone or someone's uh, something's life. Let's think about this idea of belief and appreciation. Isn't that the big idea of this passage? Don't be conformed to the pattern of the world, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Where is it that we might come from? Well, I think in the old way of thinking that we have been socialized into a depreciative way of thinking. We have learned that we should go to ask the question, what's wrong anyway? What's not right with this situation? Why isn't this working? What's the problem that I can solve? That's what's been there. Appreciative thinking on the other side says, what's right about this situation? What are they doing that is helpful here? And how can we move forward in a way that is helpful? Depreciative thinking and appreciative thinking. When all the members of a church are asking the question, what are you doing right? What do you bring well? What are you doing that's a asset contribution to us? It's when we can all live and move and work together. So around Evergreen, we have decided this. We are not going to be involved in depreciative thinking. We're not asking the question, what don't you have? We're asking the question, what do you have? We don't ask, what aren't you good at? We ask, what are you good at? There's an amazing story in the Bible. Most of us are familiar with it. I think you'll enjoy seeing it. I think you'll find it in Matthew chapter 16 about verses 15 to 18, if you want to take a look at it there later. Jesus is meeting with his uh, apostles, and there's a guy that's a part of those. We know that his given name was Simon, son of Jonah. Peter is the name that most of us recognize him by. And Jesus asked his closest followers, who do you say that I am? And you remember the story. Peter had a flash of brilliance, a gift of God revelation in the moment, and said something astoundingly, powerfully true. He said, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And I can almost hear surprise in Jesus' voice when he responds, because this is uncharacteristic of Peter. And he says to Peter, notice carefully this phrase, you are blessed. Hmm, what does it mean to be blessed? God has intervened. He has brought something to you outside of you, beyond you. You've just been given a gift, a gift of faith, a prophetic insight, wisdom beyond yourself, a gift. Hey, Simon, son of Jonah, you've been blessed. And on the basis of that transforming blessing, Jesus said, I'm going to call you Peter. Petros is the word. It it means a big rock that's been mined out of a rock quarry that can be used now as a foundational stone to build a big structure on. He says, you are Peter, this rock of stability. And on this rock, I will build my church. Rock now like the rock of Gibraltar. And, And the rock is the confession of Jesus Christ. And Peter walks away from this time with a whole new name, Rock Stable. Now, of course, we chuckle at this point in the story because we know what's about to happen, right? Peter is no grand example to us of stability about anything, is he? I mean, this is the guy that within days, Jesus is gonna look at him and said, Peter, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? This is the Peter that within a few months is going to deny that he knew Jesus three times in a row in one night. This is the same guy that within moments after getting the new name, Mr. Stable, is going to say something that is so contrary to who Jesus is and what he's about that Jesus spins and says to him, get behind me, Satan. I kind of get the impression that I I wonder if Jesus wishes he could have taken the nickname back, right? Yeah. Yeah. Jesus could have looked at Peter's life, past, present, and future, and given him a whole variety of new names, including Doubter, Simon of Little Faith, Denier, Flaky, Mouthy. Instead, he gave him, and he stuck with the name Rock. And why did he do that? Because Jesus understood that when someone's life has been touched by the power of God, transformed, that he is going to talk about the good things that he brings and that the point of emphasis is going to be on the aspiration. In fact, it's kind of fun here to take a look on the other side of your outline. There's a little chart that's there that compares the old appreciative way of thinking. The line in the middle is transformation, and on the right there's a column of appreciative. Let's just take a look at four areas. There could be many others. To depreciate is to critique. It's to notice what's wrong. By the way, it's not fair when we go through this to nudge anybody that's sitting next to you in the, el- in the, uh, in the ribs. It's just not fair. In contrast, to compliment, to identify what's right. By the way, some of you that are better spellers than I realize that I misspelled that, didn't you? How many of you noticed that there should be an I there instead of an E? Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. That's part of critiquing, and critiquing's okay. We'll get to that. How about judge? The old thinking is to judge, and that tends to evoke fear or anger or shame or blaming within us. On the other side, there's acceptance, which tends to evoke openness and equality and understanding. I can depreciate you. I can criticize you to express failure and deficiency. Let me show you the ways that you didn't get it right. Or I can encourage I can identify what's right. I can give opportunity. I can depreciate by defining weakness. You can't. You were wrong. You didn't. You missed it. Or I can be appreciative and define strengths. You can do this. I believe in you for that. Now, I know, I know there are some of us here that are are saying, okay, Jared, I get it, but isn't there a place for critique? I mean, really, really? And of course, the answer is of course. Entirely appropriate to critique. Saturday night after the service, last night, as we always do, several of us got together back in the green room, and we critiqued the service from top to bottom. And our deal is the person that was leading that particular part gets to go first, tell the rest of us what he or she thought, and then the rest of us get to comment back. And I went home and I rewrote part of the sermon. So the sermon you're getting theoretically is better today than the one that was last night. And James rewrote part of the worship, and the the band did a different rehearsal today because some worship was different. Of course we critique. So where does that fit in to the balance of things? I'm glad you asked. John Gottman has done a ton of research about relationships and initially primarily looked at couples that were recently married and uh, since then has expanded it substantially. And what he discovered was that for newly married couples, that he could, after spending a few minutes with them, predict with 94% accuracy, how many of them would divorce within the first six years of their marriage? By the way, he's also said that he and his wife stopped being invited out for dinner with newly married couples, <laughs> right about that point, yeah. <clears throat> and what he discovered was that there's an interesting ratio for relationships that are healthy and sustainable. And the ratio is five to one five positive experiences for one negative experience. Interesting. Now, when you think about gifts of the Spirit, notice with me which side of the line they land on, depreciative or appreciative. Some of us really feel bad about this. We wonder about God's wisdom, but we'd really like to have the gift of criticism, but That doesn't seem to be a gift that shows up in any of the lists, does it? The gift of judgment. I naturally am good at that. I could could just put a little salt on that gift and I'd be even better, right? And hey, I just, I'm good at identifying problems. And why is that not a gift that God's given me to just go around and point out problems and deficiencies and weaknesses? I'm really prone to spotting those. How come that isn't a gift of the Spirit anyway? you notice where the gifts of the Spirit land, don't you? Encouragement. yeah. Prophecy, which encourages. That's what Paul defines the benefit of that of. Gift of generosity, liberality, gift of service. God has gifted us in ways that focus on the fresh and new thing he's doing. And as we take a look at how he has gifted us, we look at how he's transformed us and how that changes our thinking. Why is it that we tend to default though to the old depreciative patterns? You know, when we went to school and some of you are students and you're about to bring home a report card, if they get home, I don't know how that works in your family and my family, that was part of the social contract I had with my parents, right? Report cards came home. Or maybe you're college students, you're about to get one. Maybe your parents, you've recently gotten when All of us can remember getting report cards. Maybe it went like this in your family. You get two A's, you get two B's, and you get a C. Now, if you're like me, my attention went to the C. C. C in algebra. What's the stink about that? What's wrong with that? And usually it was the teacher, right? Yeah, from the student's point of view. Yeah. Having a conversation with the mom and dad. Maybe it worked like this in your family. Where does the attention go? Most of excitement and enthusiasm about the A's, Mm. not in a lot of homes. You're supposed to get A's, kid. These B's I don't like. This C, we're gonna have a serious, serious conversation about the C. We go to deficit thinking. That's how we were conditioned. Then we get a job, and we get an employee performance review. (laughs) Brian, I don't know, uh, you're a manager, I don't know how this works for you, but I know in some places... The review goes with exceeds expectations, exceeds expectations, meets expectations, needs improvement, needs improvement, needs improvement, needs improvement. So what happens in the review? You go to the last page, right, Patty? And it asks for goals, remedial goals. This is where we're gonna get you fixed. We figured out where you're not good. We're gonna get you better here. And the remedial goals are not about accentuating where we're obviously good. What would happen if we made that even better? Oh, no. We're going to go to deficit thinking. Where are you bad? We're going to get you fixed as you're moving forward. Hmm. Now, am I arguing against looking at C's and algebra? No. Am I arguing against in a job setting where there's a deficiency that's going to be a knockout punch and improving some gifts and skills? No. That's not the argument. Here's the deal. You just don't find a lot of that in the Bible. Huh. In terms of how we view one another. Ah. God gifted us to be of service to one another in ways that help us move forward. And one of the things that I noticed in Jesus' encounter with Peter is that he was willing to give Peter an identity not of perfection, the rock, but of direction, the rock. Peter, who was going to fail miserably and was going to benefit the kingdom hugely simultaneously, was still going to be called The Rock. So when I was 16 years old, I had two bosses. In the summer, I worked for a rancher. His name was Ed. We called him Ed the Yeller. Came by that name, honestly. So I'm working with some guys, and we're unloading uh, trucks of hay and putting it in the storage barn, and, and Ed's truck comes down the gravel road, and the dust is flying, and And he gets out and he's obviously apparently not happy and his face is already flushed red and the veins bulging out of his his neck and and he's stomping and Ed always had a big chaw, you know. And so when he got mad, you didn't want to be real close to him because it was moist. There was about a 12, (laughs) there was a radius of moist. And also when he got mad, he stammered and he mumbled. And so he comes rushing out of the truck, stomping, yelling, cussing, spitting, mumbling, and finally he got it all out of his system. And he stomped back to the truck, hopped in, slammed the door, tires spun gravel on the way out, and he left. Now, one of the guys that worked on the crew probably was not the smartest one among the group, and he was the first one to speak. And he said, I think something was bothering him. (laughs) Good starting point. We could not figure out among us what he was talking about, but he had depreciated us. I'll tell you how that worked. Whenever the truck would come down the road, we would all become very self-conscious. What are we doing? Do it just right? not knowing what his standards were going to be. We felt closed down. I suppose if are some biometric measurements that our blood pressure and heart rate rose, I suppose that our palms would have a little more perspiration on them. I know that we didn't communicate and talk among ourselves as a good team would do because we were closed down because we were fearful about what Ed the Yeller was going to do. It was not a safe place with him. Mm. There's some churches that have created a corporate culture like Ed the Yeller, haven't they? Not very safe to be real. Because if you get real, you might, well, some other folks that are better than you might really let you know what they think about you. The second boss I had was, was Fred the Helper. Fred owned a men's clothing store. And I worked there as a junior and senior in high school, after school, and on Saturdays. And I know I've just removed an excuse. Some of you have given for me the way that I dress. The excuse has been he doesn't know better. <laughs> and now you know that I actually, back in the day, I knew how people were supposed to dress. So that's my confession for the day. Let me tell you about Ed, Fred the Helper. One of the services of the store was to do free gift wrapping for people who were customers. And one day I helped a woman. She bought a shirt and she came and we were doing the transaction and she said, Uh, This is a gift, a birthday gift I'd like for you to wrap it. And I said, wonderful. We're so happy to do that for our customers. And finished the transaction, and my buddies on either side were still busy. I didn't do gift wrapping. You understand? They did gift wrapping. And so I said, "Uh, uh, one of my friends here, colleagues, will help you in just a moment when they're available. She said, no, they won't. I said, oh, yeah, trust me. They will. I know them. She said, no, they won't. You will. She said, you and I will gift wrap this. We'll gift wrap it together. She said, get the stuff and we'll do this together. So I got the box and the thing in the box and I got the thing, I got the thing. And, and we started working. And I looked over to Fred, the helper, the boss, the owner, and he smiled at me and he said, go for it, Jared. You can do that. And we put together a beautiful box. So are you ready for me to just brag on myself? You're gonna be thrilled to hear about this skill. I got so into gift wrapping that I actually practiced in downtime and I became, are you ready? This will be astounding. I became the go-to gift wrapper at the man shop in Sweet Home, Oregon. I want you to know. Yeah. yeah. It's one of my gifts. It's one of my gifts. I don't have many, but it's right in there. Fred appreciated me that day. I didn't change, but I grew in value as he appreciated me that day. So our basic idea around Evergreen is this, that we're going to grow together where we're strong as we are gifted. And we're not gonna beat ourselves up about where we're not strong and we're not gifted. And where other churches do stuff tons better than we do, we're gonna celebrate that and we're gonna try to be honest about what we're called to do. We're gonna try to do that the best that we can. As a coach, and as a pastor, and as a friend, I often end my emails by saying, I believe in you. And I often end conversations by saying, I believe in you. I had a client who one day just, she kind of put her hands on her hips, and she said, Jared, I bet you say that to all your clients. And I said, well, busted. I said, that's true. And I said, I only engage with clients that I can believe in. I believe in you. I believe in you. Let's take a look at the applications today and end quickly here. Let's ask and answer the so what question in two ways. First, how do you think about your gifts, your God-given talents? Below are listed there 20 of the many more spiritual gifts that are described in Scripture. But as you do a scan through, just kind of circle there. Where has God given you faith? You're drawn toward it. Where has God given you grace? Others have recognized gifts in you. Who are you? What are your parts in God's body? Sometimes it's helpful to use a third-party questionnaire to give us some objective feedback. And there's a couple of website links there. The first one is a spiritual gifts inventory that's specifically about the seven or so gifts in our passage today. The other one includes a group of others, another 15 or so. Neither of those are perfect. I don't agree with all the definitions. That's not the point. But some have found that it's helpful to get kind of do a little questionnaire because this is the point. We need you. And you may well be far better than you think. We need your sober evaluation of who you are. Secondly, this. How do you think about others? Who has gifts that you need? Who has needs that you're gifted to meet? Who will you tell, I believe in you? Much of who I am, much of who I have become is because others have believed in me. When I was in the eighth grade, Paul Earhart, who was the volunteer high school youth director of our little country church, came to me and said, Jared, I want you to start learning how to play the guitar so that next year when you're old enough to be in the youth group, you can help lead worship. Hmm. When I was a 12th grader, I gave a short speech to a community group. And there was a Lutheran pastor in our town that I had never met before. He caught me in the hallway on the way out. And he said, Jared, you could be a pastor. When I went to college, our college pastor, Ken Klein, caught me as a college freshman. And he said, we're going to do a retreat in a couple of weeks. I want for you to give a 10-minute devotional talk. Our pastor at the time, Roy Hicks Jr., called me out of a service, church service with about a 1,000 people, and he said, Jared Roth, stand up. You went to junior high camp as a counselor. Tell us something God did in you. And I stood up and spoke to a 1,000 people. It was the first time in my life. It was our district supervisor, Roy Hicks Sr., that when Ann and I were 23 and we were about to be married, he looked at us and he said, you guys can go Atlanta Church. Her name is Dr. Sue. She, in an interview, said to me, as a 30-something husband and dad and full-time working guy with lots going on in my life, she said, "You can go back to school, and you can finish." Our current district supervisor, about three years ago, Larry Spousta, said to Ann and me, "You are appointed to serve Evergreen." The list goes on and on, doesn't it? People that God has used in our lives who have inspired us, aspirationally drawn us toward and forward. And we hear, as we we conclude, where we started with Paul today when he says, listen, folks, I'm asking you to set aside an old way of thinking. Don't be conformed to the mindset of the world, but I want you to be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can test what God's will is and when you test it, you'll approve it and you'll discover that it's delicious. It's good and pleasing and perfect. And I want you to think about yourselves, not as intoxicated or as depressed, but with clear-headed, sober-minded thinking and discover his faith and grace in your life. And when you find what he's made you gifted and good at, I want you to give your attention to doing that as well as you can, as often as you can, everywhere you can, with and to whom everyone you can. Because the bottom line of this deal is, be devoted to one another in love and honor each other above yourselves.